1: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor R.J. Wallace. We'll be talking about his new book, The View from Here, on Affirmation, Attachment, and the Limits of Regret, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. J. Wallace is professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley. Our moral lives are shot through with concerns about the past. Only a lucky few, if anyone at all, can escape nagging and persistent regrets about actions and decisions in our pasts. But sometimes those very decisions that we now regret are the causal or conceptual antecedents of further outcomes that we now must affirm. That is, when we look back on our lives, we often find certain features of our past lamentable, even though, without those very features, something of value in our present would not be. How is this mixture of regret and affirmation to be understood? In The View from Here, J. Wallace explores the complicated phenomena concerning regret and affirmation. He develops a view that reconciles the apparent contradiction between regretting something that was a necessary antecedent to something that one must in the present affirm. But in laying out this reconciliation, Wallace uncovers a pervasive and deeply disconcerting truth about the human condition— Namely, that we must affirm aspects of our lives that are undeniably the products of highly objectionable features of the past. The view from here is a thoroughly compelling and deeply intriguing work of moral philosophy. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jay Wallace. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, Bob. Well, thank you so much for joining us on new books in philosophy
0: you're welcome uh, thanks for your interest in uh, in talking about my new book
1: Well, wonderful um, today, folks on new books in philosophy, my guest is R. J. Wallace, who has just published a book with Oxford University Press titled "The View from Here on Affirmation, Attachment, and the Limits of Regret." This book explores the range of moral phenomena that attached to those retrospective assessments that we make of our own pasts, um, as its subtitle indicates. The book essentially focused on inter- interrelated questions concerning regret and affirmation. In particular, Wallace is concerned with cases in which it seems as if one must regret something in the past that is nonetheless causally or conceptually the antecedent of some subsequent outcome that we must affirm or have some positive affect towards. Um, this is a deep and compelling book, and I highly recommend it. Um, and there are lots of details here uh, that, that that we'll be discussing uh, in this interview. Um, but before we get into those details, um, Jay, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Um,
0: uh, yeah, my 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 personal biography, I don't think is particularly. Uh, Uh, interesting or compelling, you know, I was a, I was a Navy brat growing up. So I I lived all over the place, moved, moved every couple of years. So it's a little bit hard uh, to say where I'm from when people ask me that question, which I think it's a predicament I share with, with many people who um, grew up in military families. My, my family roots are in new England and I spent a lot of my uh, childhood there um, and, you know, think of new England as, as home as much as uh, any place is. Uh, but but not because I I really spent all of my childhood there. It's just that's where our family roots go back. Uh, I was educated at uh, Williams College and uh, where I did the BA degree, and uh, and then at Oxford University where I did the BPhil, and Princeton where I um, pursued the PhD degree. And um, since Princeton, I've I've taught at a number of different institutions. I was at the University of Pennsylvania for uh, for many years, and then uh, unusually, perhaps. Uh, I spent a, a period of several years uh, in the late 1990s uh, in, in Germany, in Berlin, where I was a professor at the Humboldt University, um, and um, <clears throat> which I which I very much enjoyed. And I still have uh, strong ties to to Germany and the German academic community, and go back there frequently. Um, and but since uh, since 2000, I've been a professor at the University of California at Berkeley in the Department of Philosophy, um, which um, you know, I continue to enjoy and uh find an uh especially uh, happy and stimulating uh intellectual community and intellectual home. Uh my my I you know, I'm I'm someone who works in moral philosophy and I and I understand that really in the in the broadest sense, uh you know, in our incredibly uh, hyper professionalized um <clears throat> contemporary philosophical um discipline you know it's 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 common for people to think of themselves and uh in in uh in terms think of their interests in in terms of fairly narrow categories uh and that just doesn 't work for me i 'm interested in meta ethics and moral psychology and normative ethics and um <clears throat> and broader questions about uh you know practical reason and conceptions of the self and value and how these, all, all of these different things, um, uh, fit together and, uh, and relate to each other. So, uh, it's, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I, can't re- uh, honestly say that, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm interested only in some, some parts of the subject as opposed to others. In fact, what I find gripping about moral philosophy as a, as a set of intellectual questions is in some ways, um, the interconnections between the different parts of the subject, which, um, which you know i think uh i i think it a lot of its um compelling character you, you know you can't really mm-hmm. um understand issues in normative ethics without seeing their connection to questions in the theory of practical reason and in moral psychology and so on um in terms of my published work i i i've written on a, a fairly correspondingly kind of wide range of topics my first book was responsibility and the moral sentence which was on uh you know the horrid question of uh, the nature of moral responsibility and the compatibility of responsibility and um, determinism or a naturalistic explanatory outlook uh, on on things uh i've i've worked extensively on problems in uh, the theory of um, <clears throat> Uh, practical reason and moral psychology some of my papers in there those areas are collected uh in a book called normativity and the will um and uh, yeah i've i've edited a number of collections and uh um and uh, my interests extend even in hi- historical directions as well so uh so that's oh, a little right. bit about um yeah about my my uh my personal and, um, intellectual biography
1: Great well let me pick up on um uh, the way you characterize your, your your the breadth of your interest in moral philosophy um, and ask you um, a question uh, about the um maybe the methodological um commitments that are lying behind uh the new book the view from here um, so um it, it seems to me that the, the view from here um, is um, distinctive in a way in that um, uh, as a work in moral philosophy in that it's it's almost exclusively focused on sort of backward-looking moral assessments Um, i don't have to tell you and i'm sure most of our listeners will 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 be aware that um, you know a lot of moral philosophy that gets done either tends to focus on the sort of um, present time moral assessment or something prospective, um, like, you know, what should some agent do given some circumstances, uh, you know, moving forward in the world? Um, but this book um, is is instead focused on um, these retrospective attitudes, looking back on our lives or looking back on particular events. Um, so let me ask the question, does this reflect a, um, a, a a feature of your conception of moral philosophy or a methodological commitment on your part?
0: Uh, that's a great question, Bob. And, um, I, I, you know, actually, in, in some ways, it brings out something I wasn't even particularly conscious of in writing the book, which is a certain continuity between themes I explore here and in some of my earlier work on responsibility, where, um, uh, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very exercised by the question of what what it is to what it is to hold people responsible and to to take an attitude of blame toward what they've done or to blame oneself. Uh, and these are these are you know uh, themselves uh, retrospective uh, attitudes, right? We we um, uh, and 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 I think any uh, I guess a minimal kind of methodological commitment that I have um, is the to to seeing mora- uh, moral standards as. Uh, as uh, not only regulating our forward-looking decisions, which uh, is, of course, their uh, one of their primary loci uh, of application. You know, you've been in deliberation and deciding what to do when uh, one, one refers to, to moral standards and principles and takes them seriously as providing uh, important reasons for, for action or for refraining from things one would otherwise be um, tempted or inclined to do uh that is an important dimension of morality but it but it's also i think an important basis for uh retrospective assessment you know the fact that someone acted wrongly um or or perhaps wronged someone else in their interactions um uh, you know changes the, their their relations to the people who've been affected by uh by what was done in in ways that give those people um you know grounds for uh for uh retrospective um, attitudes that wouldn't otherwise be in place, you know, resentment. Uh, in my earlier book on responsibility, drawing on themes from from, uh, from Strawson, I I emphasize the importance of the moral sen- uh, backward-looking moral sentiments like resentment and, and guilt and indignation um, to the the stance of holding someone responsible, which are in, in effect uh, backward-looking attitudes towards something uh, people have done. And you know, the general idea is that it's important that morality should provide. Uh, a basis for responsibility relations between people which are relations that are structured in terms of these uh these negative um backward uh assessments um so you know i think one one important methodological commitment uh when it comes to understanding morality is 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 just uh seeing how moral principles can function not just as forward-looking guides to to action but also as a basis for responsibility relations which have a um, important retrospective uh, dimension, responsibility relations between uh, between people. Um, it, you know, uh, so, so that's a, that's a, um, um, uh, a general commitment. The, the, the book does not, however, focus uh, just on uh, questions of moral assessment. That's that's one of the que- uh, questions that are at issue, but uh, but looks more more uh, more more generally at um, our retrospective attitudes towards our lives and the. And the you know personal and impersonal conditions that shape our lives, and um, uh, <clears throat> the the attitudes we take toward those things when we look back on them in uh, reflection, and uh, that my my interest in this um, this broader set of issues um, um, is is connected to uh, to a longstanding concern with with themes in the in the uh, moral philosophy of Bernard Williams. Right who i think is um uh you, you know was th- this this idea of the uh the retrospective point of view as a point of view that is um distinctively perspectival and shaped by one's present um projects and relationships and what i call in the in the new book uh, attachments this is a i think a, a really important theme in in williams's uh work and the, and the book emerged really out of um, sustained reflection about um that, that began with um uh, with, with thinking about the argument of one of williams's uh most um most famous papers moral luck and right. the, the example of uh, a kind of um <clears throat> stylized paul gauguin right who in right. in moral luck um you know leaves his family in the lurch in paris to go off to Tahiti to become a um, to to develop as a as a painter and um williams is what an, an interestingly neglected i think it's the main uh crux of his argument but it's, it's strangely neglected in the literature on on, on moral luck but the uh one of ma- williams's major contentions in the, the the paper is that uh the question of whether williams uh, whether whether gauguin was justified in leaving his family behind in paris is uh, is hostage to fortune at, at, the, at a time when he took uh, the decision, and in particular, um, it all depends on whether he uh, ends up being um, you know a successful artist in a certain right. sense um, and if he does, then williams 's argument is that the the successful Gauguin will not be able to look back on his uh, earlier decision and to regret it. Um, right. And um, the in, and furthermore, Williams claims that that inability to regret his uh, earlier decision amounts to a retrospective justification of that decision.
1: Well that, that's right. So let me let me perfect. Let me let me ask then uh, about, about this okay. um, uh, feature that, that keeps getting de- you know, that, that progressively gets developed uh, right. uh, in your book. Um because you lay out of you know, you keep returning to um the Williams example yeah. and you develop a framework which um, is comprised of a of a kind of continuum between um different strengths of regret on the one hand, yes. uh, at the extreme end Um, what you call all-in regret. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's different strengths of affirmation. uh, And at the extreme other end, there's unconditional affirmation. And so I take it that you want to criticize um, or resist, let's say, the, the Williams conclusion, which is, as you just put it, right, the fact that Um, abandoning the family in Paris was a condition for the artistic achievement, Mm -hmm. which was something greatly valuable, right? Not only to the artist, but, um, to lots of other people and, uh, uh, lots of people who didn't exist at the time that he achieved it and all the rest, um, that somehow Williams thinks that, um, firstly, that the uh that, that gauguin couldn't ha- regret the decision he made to abandon his family yeah. and secondly that because he couldn't regret that decision, the decision plays some kind of or gets some kind of um uh positive moral evaluation or something yep. that there's a, there's a new kind of moral justification given that it was the condition for the possibility of, yep. we might say the artistic achievement. Now I take it that the, the framework between the, the different strengths of regret and affirmation is what's carving out space for you to say in response to this case, something that I will confess sounds to me far more sensible. Okay. <laughs> I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah. So can, can you tell us a little bit about how that okay. um, those categories work and, and how you would offer a different analysis right. of the Gauguin case? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Happy to do that. Um, you know, the the I, I think you really nicely um, laid out the the, uh, the the issues raised by the Gauguin example in terms of, uh, you know, two questions uh, that um, f- first, why why couldn't. Why it can't the go successful Gauguin regret the earlier decision? And um second, what are the implications of his inability to regret for the question of justification? Um and uh you know the, the apparatus of uh distinctions uh in retrospective attitudes that you refer to is really an attempt uh in the first instance to make sense of the first of these questions. You know, um I, I find I find what um William says about this case really extremely suggestive, but there's uh, it, you know to make sense of it, it seems like we we need um, you know we need a a better account of the nature of regret and what it is in in regret and in its relation to affirmation that precludes um, a certain kind of regret on the part of someone like um, uh, uh, on the part of someone like oga and so so to make sense of this i I, I introduced these categories that you uh, that you mentioned. Uh, one of them is the, the, the phenomenon of all in regret as opposed to merely having regrets about something. Um, you know, in in, in the most generic sense to regret something is to have some, you know, a pained consciousness perhaps of some um some event or circumstance in the past uh that has an unfortunate dimension. And yeah you know in that in that very generic sense there's nothing uh that would preclude even the very successful Gauguin from uh from regretting or having regrets about um you know the family he, he the destitute family he left behind in Paris. he can think back and have a pained consciousness about that just as he can look back on all kinds of things and have a pained consciousness about them. what it seems to me um if we're going to make sense of this argument uh is is not open to um to the successful Gauguin is, um, all in regret, which is a specific attitude, um, that involves, um, as it were an unbalanced preference, uh, a, a quasi intention like attitude that, um, that things should have been otherwise in the, uh, in the respect that occasions present pain or sorrow about them. So, um, what I imagine, um, you know, Gauguin unable to do is to look back on his decision and to wish on balance uh, that he hadn't decided to leave Paris. Right. And I think that's the kind of thing that um, Williams must be uh, assuming is, is not available to the successful Gauguin. Now, why isn't that available to Gauguin? I think, uh, I think the reason is that that earlier decision becomes a historical condition for uh, basically um, the The project that gives the successful gauguin um uh, his primary basis for affirming his life right, um, he, right. he affirms his life he he um, he prefers that, uh, he, you know he has a has a kind of positive attitude towards his life on account of the role in that life of his successful artistic projects and uh my uh, my hypothesis on williams 's behalf is that uh, the reason why Williams thinks that Gauguin can't regret in this all-in way the earlier decision is that it conditions this um, uh, the thing that provides him with a basis for affirming his life. Now, affirming one's life in this unconditional way is is basically you know preferring on balance that one should have lived the actual life that one lived as opposed to you know um, the alternative that one shouldn't have lived at all. It's a fairly minimal condition um but the the idea is that this this affirmative attitude um you know is is rightly described as the attitude of affirming one's life and it has um um it, and it, it's an attitude that reflects a kind of attachment to one's own life and to the things in one's life that give it meaning and this relation to attachment i think uh, expresses itself in the the further idea that affirmation in these cases has a kind of unconditional character, so to affirm one 's life unconditionally is to um, is to is to <clears throat> is to prefer on balance the actual life one one has led um, and uh, and in, in a way that commits one in turn to affirming the historical conditions uh, of that life and and uh, so at this point we see the incompatibility of. Unconditional affirmation of one's life and all in regret about one of its conditions. Those two attitudes, as I as I as I try to refine and uh, interpret them, uh, really can't can't be combined coherently. And so, right. so, it's the unconditional affirmation of Guggen's life that precludes all in regret about the decision that um, uh, that you know made uh, that made possible um, its 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 defining um, it's his his later defining project. Uh, and um, so, so that's the structure of attitudes that 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 re- recurs then throughout the book in a variety of other contexts as well. Um,
1: right. So let me just ask one further yes. sort of a part of the the, the the structure here, because. Um, uh, in describing the the, the, the attitudes uh, you know the, the various strengths of regret and affirmation yes. you 've made reference to attachment and to projects yes um, so can you tell us a little bit explicitly about um uh, the, the 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 attachment I take it that the the, the story would would be much different if um, uh gauguin didn 't have um um, wasn't attached to his artistic products or yeah. uh, his way of life, that somehow th- th- these different attitudes, regret and affirmation, are sort of indexed to um, uh, projects or um, uh, um, uh, attachments or I, ground projects or, or yes. something of, of, of this kind. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit explicitly about about the role that – that 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 element plays in the in the structure.
0: Okay, very good. You know the uh, I mean the most general terms. Uh, this this word attachment is uh, is standing in for the sorts of things that Williams variously talked about as ground projects or uh, as categorical desires. Um, <clears throat> the, um, you know, relationships are uh, obviously um, um, they were important to Williams and, um, and and to other philosophers, and they're they're uh, a prominent example of the phenomenon of attachment. One is attached to the people one loves, um, and uh, you know, Christine Korsgaard's uh, talk about practical identities and the source of normativity right. is, is a different vocabulary. I think we could use for uh, for talking about similar sorts of things. Um, uh, you know the, the the basic idea is that these uh that these that attachments in these sense uh in, in these uh of these kinds uh basically constitute the perspective from which we reflect uh, when we look back on earlier decisions and um uh and and aspects of uh, our life uh, and and reflect on them in evaluative terms and it's it's attachments uh, specifically that uh, in some way commit us to affirming um Earlier decisions and uh, conditions that we faced, decisions we made and conditions we faced, and its attachments in this sense that also preclude, uh, for for the same reasons, uh, attitudes of all-in regret about some of the same earlier uh, decisions and conditions. So the idea is that you know it's it's a it's a part of the nature of attachment that it generates, a kind of, um, um, and provides a basis for unconditional attitudes of affirmation, uh, which have this kind of dynamic uh quality that they they commit us to affirming um you know the conditions for the things that we uh that we that we uh immediately uh affirm themselves relationships are perhaps the clearest example of this you know if you if you love someone uh and you you you're glad on balance that the person exists and is part of your life and and that attitude um i think very naturally uh uh, um, spreads back to the ha- historical conditions of the person you love you you you're you're c- committed in virtue of your, your affirmative attitude toward the person to affirming that the conditions obtained that um brought them into existence in the first place so that you know in they, though we don't often think in these terms you're, you know in, but but um it seems to me it's a simple truth that if you love someone you you can't really regret the conditions that made it possible for them to to um, to come into existence in the first place
1: well that 's a good uh, place to break in and, and ask about the other recurring example okay. in the book, um, which is precisely um, uh, m- maybe as I, well as I was reading it, I was thinking oh this is the this is the kind of example that really makes very good sense of of the attachment aspect of yeah. this because you consider a case that in some ways is structurally similar uh, to the to the Williams case about uh, Gauguin, but is um, in fact about a uh, a woman uh, who when she is um, uh, uh, very young uh, decides to uh, bear a child right. um, under conditions under which it would seem morally objectionable for somebody uh, that young under those circumstances, uh, such as you describe them, uh, to 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 bear a child. There are moral questions about uh, the young woman's ability to um, provide the necessary care and attention right. given her young age, um, and then later uh, uh, in the in the life of the child, um, things. I I guess we could say go fairly well and um now the woman uh who is now a mother uh can't help but affirm right. <laughs> uh this outcome while also you you argue um being, um, uh, uh, you know, being able to to, to judge the circumstances, uh, the decision that she made when, when she was still, you know, very young, uh, in a way that's not positively or or whole, you know wholesalely positively uh, morally valent, right? So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the young mother case? Good, excellent. Yeah, well, you've
0: you've given a nice description of the case. The idea is that at the time when the young mother um, uh, basically decides to conceive a child. Uh, there are compelling reasons, not just moral reasons. Uh, I mean, moral reasons in part, but also prudential reasons in the broadest sense, um, not to have, not to conceive a child at that stage in, uh, in her life. Uh, we could say that you know, the decision to do that wasn't justified either morally or prudentially uh, at the time when it was taken. Um, nevertheless, once the child exists um in in and the case, uh, you know on on, so on on the on the minimal assumption that the child's life is um, you know worth living on balance um you know both the child and the mother uh it, are going to uh for different reasons in the different cases they're going to look back on that decision and in my sense uh be unable to regret it in this all in way be committed to affirming it. Um, and this uh, this, as you say, nicely illustrates um, you know a feature of the, the, uh, the way in which present attachments shape our retrospective point of view. The mother's attachment or love to or love for the, the, the child um, commits her uh, really to, to affirming the decision that she made to conceive um, when she looks back on it since that condition uh, that, that decision was a condition for the existence of the child um, whom, whom she's now uh, whom she's now attached to. Now, uh, <clears throat> I, 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 this, this case was introduced into philosophical discussions originally by, uh, by Derek Parfit, uh, in the context of a different debate about the so-called non-identity problem. Um, and it's not really my, my main intention to, to solve the non-identity problem, um, um, in, in this case. But, uh, what, what interests me is precisely the, the point that you mentioned, which is that the case has a, uh, a kind of structural parallel that I think is um, illuminating to Williams's Gauguin case. Um, and uh, though, but I think that the parallel uh, works against Williams's conclusion. Now, if we go back to the Williams case, you, uh, um, uh, you know, you, you'd mentioned earlier that um, on, on Williams's view, uh, the hypothesized inability of Gauguin, successful Gauguin to regret his earlier decision um, in Williams's view uh, amounts to a retrospective justification for that decision um and and that's the that's the element of luck in the Gauguin case at the time when gauguin made the decision he wouldn't know couldn't know whether he'd be successful and but whether he he is successful as an artist will determine in turn uh whether that decision uh, become comes to be justified or not by uh, by his artistic success, so the idea is that Gauguin's inability to regret the earlier decision amounts to an ex post, ex post facto um, justification for it—not not really a moral justification per se. You know, uh, artistic success doesn't give uh, Gauguin. Uh, and I think Williams is clear enough about this. It doesn't give him something that silences the complaints that his children might have about what he's done to them, but it justifies it in some broader rational sense uh, from Gauguin's perspective. That's that's Williams' thesis. But this um has come to seem very questionable to me. Um it seems to me. And I think the what's wrong with it um is is brought out pretty clearly by the young mother case in, in the the uh, the case of the young girl's child. Um, i don't think we want to say that um uh the the decision to conceive a child at that stage in life when she was still a a, a young teenager comes to be justified by her later inability to regret the decision right um it still was uh, it it was a it was a mistaken decision to make there are moral and prudential reasons not to make decisions of this kind when you're in those circumstances um the mother will still affirm those reasons when she thinks about the uh, the situation of, of of you know other you know girls who are in in the same situation uh, today, um, and uh, and it just seems uh, to, to me uh, misleading to think that her inability to regret the earlier decision in virtue of her attachment to the child uh, to whom she gave birth. Um, constitutes some kind of retrospective justification for it. Rather, uh, the natural thing to say is just that uh, circumstances have changed. She's come through her um, earlier mistaken decision. um, A new attachment has uh, come into her life, in virtue of which she's unable to regret this decision that continues to be a, a decision that was mistaken or unjustified. So there's a, a mistaken or a wrong decision that is inaccessible to retrospective regret in virtue of um, the attachments that have uh, come come into our life in the intervening period. And I think this is just a kind of structural feature of the backward, uh, you know, the retrospective point of view. It's shaped by attachments that, um, that, um, that emerge uh, and that um, alter our relation to the past events that we uh, look back on in ways that can um, interestingly lead us uh, to be unable to, uh, uh, to regret um, past uh, decisions or circumstances that were lamentable or that were mistaken, uh, and that commit us to affirming things that are in the same way um, problematic or mistaken when we look back on them. So applying that lesson to the Gauguin case, we can perhaps concede uh, to Williams that the successful gauguin can 't regret his earlier decision to live um, to leave his family behind uh, but it's uh, to, um, but, but but resist uh, nevertheless williams 's conclusion that um, that his decision is uh, is just, justified retrospectively by um, by gauguin's uh, later success that 's just not the way it works on the contrary uh, it seems to me just a, a feature of the human predicament that um uh, that our retrospective point of view often introduces rifts between uh, the standpoint of retrospective assessment and uh, the standpoint of <clears throat> agents at the time of the events that we're looking back on, uh, such that such that there there are lots of uh, mistaken or unjustified or morally objectionable um, decisions or circumstances that people might nevertheless, when they look back on them, be committed um, in virtue of their attachments to to affirming
1: let me ask you sort of um what a question about one of the the ways in which um the williams case and the young mother case are 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 not quite analogous yeah. um so um I take it that um and you, you 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 discuss this in the book so this is not a, a coming out of a, a yes. field as it were. Um but it seems that one um uh, one you know, our listeners who are familiar with 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 the Williams case might say well um th- the thing that's that's missing in the young mother case is the is the moral luck aspect mm-hmm. um that is um the the mother uh can know in advance. Yes that uh if she um uh, if she has her her child um the future her will have an attachment to something right. and affirm something yeah. um the Gauguin case is a case in which we could very easily imagine because um let's face it uh the world is uh, there are far more failed artists in the world than right. successful ones right uh where um the artist uh um takes this, you know, does this uh abandons uh his family and then um winds up with nothing that's affirmable. Right. Um and so it it seems that in the Williams case um the, the fortune uh, uh, th- th- that that the product was something that one could be attached to yes. uh, is 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 a, an important element of the story. Um, does that change your? Or, or how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Uh, well, sure. let me just ask do you think that's a relevant disanalogy? Well, I know I think it's a
0: striking disanalogy between, between the cases. That's and it's absolutely right. It's predictable. Uh, you know, parents predictably develop attachments <laughs> to their children, and uh, and so it's 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 perfectly predictable in advance um, that the
1: uh, <laughs> and when they don't and when they don't develop those attachments, it's a problem with the parents. It right? We diagnose them. It's not <laughs> yeah, a uh, exactly. it's not it's it's not it's never very rarely taken as an assessment right. uh, of 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 the child. Right. right? Yeah, OK. Yeah. yeah. So
0: it's uh, I agree. It's completely predictable in that case. There's there's very little epistemic luck um, at the time of the decision uh, with respect to the question of whether the mother's going <clears> to <throat> look back on it. Uh, affirmatively or not, and, th- and that does contrast with the um, uh, with the Gauguin case. I, I, I and, and I agree and, and think that's an interesting contrast. The, the problem is the contrast doesn't help Williams's argument. I mean, the crucial thing for Williams is that the, in, the later inability to regret um, the decision on the part of the the, the successful Gauguin, uh basically um, affects the question of whether the decision was justified after all. So. Uh, so that it's a matter of epistemic luck at the time when he made the decision whether it will turn out to be justified. But if the uh, if if as I argue the inability to regret the inaccessibility to regret uh, for the earlier decision of the um, of the successful Gauguin, uh does not amount to an, a retrospective justification, then uh, it doesn't turn out. It turns out that you know the justification of his decision isn't subject to epistemic luck um, after all. Uh, you know, we, we don't need to know whether Gauguin is successful and therefore able to affirm or um, <clears throat> regret in this all-in way his decision to know whether it was justified. We can just look at the circumstances that obtained at the time when he made the decision. And um, it seems to me that, you know, that there's a compelling reason for thinking that it wasn't justified on, uh, on those grounds and that, you know, nothing about his later um, uh, success or lack of it as an artist affects that. Um, that fundamental question of justification
1: right 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 very good um so um le- let me move on if if i may sure. because um uh at the close of chapter three um there 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 are a couple of pages that that I found um really really interesting um uh, in which you um, comment um, on certain discourses concerning disability and disability yes. communities and um, you um, you bring your uh, analysis of the different strengths of regret and uh, the compatibility of different forms of regret with affirmation uh, to bear on um, uh, certain questions about right. um, affirming... Um, Uh, affirming a life that uh, popularly would be called a life where there's prevalent disabilities um, and what that means in people's um, reasoning about uh, uh, children to uh, disabled couples and so on and so forth. Can can you tell us a little bit about that discussion? Sure.
0: Yeah. Happy to do that. So, I mean, um, at this point in the argument i'm I'm shifting my focus a little bit from I, I mean the, the cases we've talked about so far the Gauguin case and the young girl's mother involve cases where we we imagine agents looking back in, on some decision that that they have taken in the past uh, that then shapes their subsequent life and, um, and and you know in the way in which their their present attachments when they look back on these decisions um, uh, affect their ability to to regret or to affirm the things they look back on, um, but I think something like the same dynamic, uh, um, you know, emerges when we we look back not just on decisions we've taken, but on on circumstances that that shape our life, uh, our, our lives in various ways. And um, um, you know, among the personal circumstances that can very profoundly uh, shape one's life are, uh, you know, the the the, the, the physical and um, um, mental capacities that one is is born with and my um, my 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 idea here is that um, you, you know a, a situation is is um, i think easily conceivable where uh where you know um, uh, a developmental uh, condition that we would uh, ordinarily characterize as a kind of uh, disability um, is a it's you know it doesn't result from a decision someone's taken it's just a feature of their life someone might have born had been born without the capacity to to hear for instance uh, and but that that feature of their um, their abilities and capacities will presumably in, in many cases uh, shape their uh, their defining projects and activities as uh, as adults in ways that could um, leave them um, Unable to regret those decisions, insofar as those decisions, those those conditions, insofar as the conditions have have come to shape the activities that define and give meaning to their life. So, so I assume that um, uh, you know members of the hearing impaired community uh, participate in forms of human culture that are immensely valuable that involve um, you know sign language and uh, abilities to, to to communicate without hearing. Uh, that define um, these communities, and uh, someone who's who 's grown up in this environment and who um, uh, could uh, could, in virtue of uh, the attachments that have come to define their adult life, find themselves um, for structurally similar reasons committed to affirming the uh, the hearing impairment that has shaped their um, their defining projects as um, as as adults. Uh, now, my, my suggestion is that being in this kind of uh <clears throat> relation to the conditions that define your um your your adult activities doesn't um amount you know to uh to to the conclusion that it's in general uh valuable or desirable uh that other um human beings who uh who <clears throat> um have opportunities to overcome these same conditions should, um, uh, should not p- be provided with the opportunities to do so. So, uh, you know, an interesting case that is much discussed involves, uh, you know, decisions of, um, uh, that parents might take to have uh, their hearing impaired children, um, have them uh, equipped with cochlear Im- implants. And, uh, you know, the, uh, my, my suggestion is that, you know, a, a parent in uh, the situation might be committed to affirming their own, um, uh, hearing, uh, their, their own, um, uh, condition of deafness insofar as that conditions the, uh, adult activities that have come to define their lives, uh, without necessarily being committed in virtue of that attitude to thinking that it would be better for their own children to, um, uh, to, to be deprived of the opportunities to participate in, um, uh, you know, hearing, uh, the, 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 the hearing culture by by having um um cochlear implants uh um e- equipped um so so you know we we find a, a similar situation where you know someone is has a condition that might in in general be described as an impairment but is committed in virtue of its relation to their uh defining life activities to affirming that condition in their own case and and the suggestion is that 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 shouldn't that, that's a perfectly intelligible c- condition, but it doesn't amount to the judgment that it's in general better for people to lack the capacity to hear. And in particular, it doesn't uh, provide a justification for, um, <clears throat> you know, for the decision to um, um, uh, not, not to provide um, some hearing capacities to their own children if opportunities to do that are available
1: right and it seems also to um to equip um hearing impaired parents who um opt for uh, cochlear implants for their children to deflect criticisms that yeah. um that decision um amounts to uh um um sort of um practically taking a negative um attitude towards their um uh, their, their 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 own uh, uh, definite exactly yes no, I think the you know our attitudes are much
0: more uh, they 're they're, they're complex and nuanced in cases like this and and I think some of the nuance in, in them uh, the potential nuance comes into clearer focus when we when we distinguish in the ways i 'm trying to do in this book between um, you know the commitment to affirming something and its evaluation as as, as good or bad. These things can come apart, and uh, and they can come apart in ways that I think might make make sense of otherwise puzzling um, situations like that of adults who, who both maybe affirm their own uh, you know their own um, condition, their own hearing impairment, but but nevertheless decide uh, to um, to take steps that will overcome that same condition in their children. I think that's a perfectly right. coherent um uh set of attitudes um once we once we tease apart um you know retrospective <clears throat> affirmation and positive um, uh evaluative judgment or justification
1: right right so now moving on because uh you're right that 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 the the the, the this discussion begins to move in the direction of um the final chapter of the book yeah. um which is squarely about um uh cases involving um uh r- regrettable past circumstances that are not tied uh to one's own agency or yes. might not even be tied to agency uh at all yeah um and you raise this uh, is very provocative and um I-, I would say uh really really compelling and interesting uh the last chapter is devoted to a discussion of what you call the bourgeois predicament um so let me just yeah let me just ask you uh so Tell us what's the bourgeois predicament? What, what are we talking about here? Good,
0: yeah. I mean, the bourgeois predicament. It's a, it's, um, it's a little bit provocative, but you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's personal for me, and I think for many people in my situation. I mean, the, sure. and you know, the, and, and the idea here really is, is, is uh, a fairly simple one. But it's that many of us who, who have the, um, the good fortune to live in conditions of comparative affluence. Uh, you know, have built our lives around, I'm not talking about, you know, the extravagant activities of the one percent or or such, but, you know, take university professors uh, who are, have the good fortune to, to, to work in, um, you know, fairly uh, ambitious and well-endowed and well-funded universities. Um, uh, My my assumption is that, you know, the philosophical activities in these kind of contexts are undeniably valuable. They're the sorts of things that, um, you know, can make for a extremely rewarding and meaningful life and provide the people who engage in the activities with uh, a powerful basis for affirming their lives um, uh, as they lead them. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's um, it seems to me an obvious fact that um, the, these very activities are conditioned and made possible uh, by um, by broader social and historical conditions that are objectively lamentable, right? right. Uh, so and in particular, I'm thinking here of, you know, global um, global inequalities and in the distribution of uh, resources and access to opportunities, um, which, uh, you know, uh, um, regardless of whether we think of, uh, you know, the vast disparities of uh, um, uh, you know, resources and opportunities in the world as matters of global injustice or not, they, they're unquestionably, it seems to me, lamentable. The world would be a better place if, if things were more equitably distributed, in, including resources and opportunities. Uh, but my, uh, I think, fairly uh, compelling hypothesis or, 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 or um, seems to me fairly obvious hypothesis is that, you know, contemporary, you know, um, elite uh, research universities would not exist in their current form in a world in which uh, <clears throat> uh, you know resources and opportunities were distributed more equitably um, that's not to say there would be no philosophy there would be no universities or no philosophy uh, philosophical activities in the world but it seems to me they'd be unimaginably different from the the form that they take uh, in the current world where the elite universities um, support um, uh, Cultural activities of this sort at a high level, in part because they control disproportionate um, resources and are connected to a culture of of people who are um, <laughs> hugely advantaged in the dis- distribution of global resources so uh, if these uh, if these background assumptions are plausible then uh, then people like myself we find ourselves in the situation that I call the bourgeois predicament where um, like Gauguin, our lives are organized around valuable activities. I don't question the value of, uh, philosophical research in elite, um, uh, research, um, environments where, so, but, um, we're, 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 our lives acquire meaning and significance in virtue of containing in them these kinds of activities, uh, and that commits us to affirming, uh, unconditionally those activities and the conditions that make them possible and those conditions include these um, lamentable global inequalities that um, it would be better if the world did not contain right so uh, so we're we're in a situation where um, our our valuable activities the the bourgeois predicament is just the predicament that uh, arises for those of us who uh, who who are in this fortunate position where the value of the activities around which we organize our lives um, is connected in ways to lamentable uh, social and historical conditions in ways that commit us to affirming those very conditions. Uh, And this is, this is a kind of absurd situation um, since it's very obvious to us that the conditions that make possible our valuable activities are uh, lamentable. Um, um, And it's an uncomfortable predicament to, uh, to confront. I think a lot of us try to avoid it in various ways by, you know, uh, you know avoiding thinking thinking about it, but uh you know it's it, the the situation is is there to be confronted, and it seems to me it 's uncomfortable for us once we um, make clear to us the relation between uh the viable activities uh that give meaning to our lives and the the things the, object, the objectionable um social conditions that make those activities possible in the first place
1: so right so the 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 book closes then with what you r- refer to as a pessimistic conclusion. Yes. Um and you discuss uh I, I should mention um you discuss sort of three um uh possible and I, I would guess sort of popular responses to um, uh, the bourgeois predicament, and you say none of these is actually going to uh, uh, um, uh, get us out of the predicament, and uh, right. in fact, none of them actually offer us much much consolation yes. for the conclusion, which is uh, looming that um, in a way um, uh, w- we are let me see if i can if I can put this uh, just right okay. um, we are um, sort of psychologically um, compelled to affirm our lives when They are devoted to um, projects and aspirations that are of value, uh, which our our lives tend to be. Um, And so there's no way of getting rid of the attitude. There's no way of getting rid of the affirmation. But there's also no way uh, on reflection of of shaking the the other realization, which is that um, these very activities uh, to which we are attached and which are objectively valuable and so on are um, made possible only or or to say made possible by um histories and conditions that are intrinsically uh and again objectively perhaps we might even say stronger uh unob- you know sort of uh, uh incontrovertibly uh yeah. sort of objectionable right. Right. <laughs> so um so is this conclusion um Uh, An existentialist conclusion that we're sort of doomed to um, a kind of bad faith or is it a nihilistic? Maybe these aren't such different uh, options. Is this a nihilistic conclusion? Besides calling it pessimistic, which we can feel the force of the pessimism, um, philosophically, how would you characterize this sort of inevitability of being trapped in this predicament?
0: Good. Uh yeah, well um I no, I do think it has kind of existentialist character. And uh I talk about Nietzsche a bit in this co- uh context. I mean, uh, you know, to be clear, the the, the bourgeois predicament is illustrates the, the general structure of the problem, right? Where you've got something of valuable value in your life that you're attached to, uh and your attitude of attachment commits you to affirming the conditions of that thing. And so in the bourgeois predicament, the the valuable activities, because they're so obviously um, conditioned by uh, lamentable inequalities in uh, the distribution of, of resources and opportunities. You know, we can see fairly transparently the the, the relation between uh, the valuable activities that we're attached to and uh, and the lamentable social conditions that um, <clears throat> that you know we're thereby committed to affirming. But the uh, you know the, gen- the 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 worry though is that this this situation structurally generalizes to virtually anyone who's committed to anything. Right, right. Just because just to be to be committed to something valuable is, insofar as uh, to be attached to it, in to, like uh, to be attached to a person is to be implicitly committed to affirming the necessary historical conditions of the existence of the person. And you know, for all we know, those conditions it, um, might include you know historical atrocities, wars that caused you know migrations um, that brought you know two people together who. Uh, gave birth to your great grandmother, or something like that, or the great grandmother, the person whom you now love, who would not therefore have existed without that um, lamentable uh, larger historical
1: condition now. Uh, or even closer still, there might just be, you know, even more locally, you might say just sort of, um, ways in which societies are structured a- along objectionable class lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that plays a, uh, you know, those lines play a, a crucial causal role in, you know, h- how you met all of the people who yeah. are really
0: important exactly. to you. Yeah. Uh, right. right. I mean, for, for virtually any attachment, there uh, uh, countless ways in which that might be conditioned by things that we you know when we face up to them are are you know, they 're not things we did we 're not talking about um, decisions we 've taken we 're talking about you know historical and social conditions but they're they 're ones that we find objectionable and objectively uh, lamentable now um, I, I connect this up to um, nietzsche 's idea of the recur- eternal recurrence of the same, which is you know often puzzled me as a kind of uh, it's, it's, I think it's puzzled many people as a kind of uh, condition for what Nietzsche called the affirmation of life was your, you know, you can affirm your life only if you're willing to affirm the eternal recurrence of world history, the totality of world history, um, uh, the, the recurrence of world history for all eternity. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a doctrine that people have tried to uh, interpret in a variety of ways. Um, but I think it, there's a, there's a I, I'm not a Nietzsche scholar, but I think there's a, a way of making sense of this that links it up to the general structures of attitude that I talk about in the book. And, um, and I go into this a bit in the conclusion. And the idea here is just that, um, you know, for all we know, our attachment to some particular individual or project might commit us to affirming virtually anything in virtue of the relate you know any any feature of world history, insofar as um, you know for all we know uh, if that feature of world history hadn't occurred, then the thing that we affirm wouldn't have existed or wouldn't have been possible right uh, and so um, you know we can think of eternal recurrence as a kind of regulative ideal. you can really affirm your life and the things the the, the individuals that you love and the projects that give your life meaning. You can affirm these things uh fully only if you're prepared to affirm the totality of uh um, world history because for all your you know your attitude of affirmation toward towards your life and the things that give it meaning might already commit you to affirming uh the most um, uh you know egregiously objectionable features um, of the larger uh world history in which our lives are bound up uh and you know that's a that's an um Unnerving conclusion, I think. Um, a conclusion that has a kind of existentialist character, perhaps. I describe it in the conclusion as as involving a, a modest form of nihilism. Um, I say a modest form of nihilism because uh, the the argument of the book doesn't. Uh, I mean, some extreme forms of nihilism d- d- deny any distinctions of value, um, and you know, deny that there's anything that's genuinely good or valuable or worthwhile in the world and, and that's certainly not one of my premises um but um but you know the the conclusion nevertheless it seems to me can accurately be described as involving an element of nihilism because it says that that each of us has um attitudes towards our own lives and the people we love uh that don't ultimately make sense right, right. they involve an element of um unconditional affirmation of the conditions that made uh, our attachments possible in the first place uh, that you know um, that 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 isn't um, adequate to the conditions that that we inhabit. We're committed to affirming things that aren't ultimately really worthy of being affirmed uh, right. in virtue of um, of affirming our lives and the things in our lives that give them meaning and significance and uh, you know so so there's something absurd about our um, our attitude towards uh, our own lives. Um, that reflects the, you know, the uncomfortable fact that we inhabit a world uh, in which um, the things that we value and that make it possible for us to value our lives are conditioned by things that are unquestionably, you know, abominations. <laughs> that's, you know, that's um, excellent. And that's part of the human predicament, it seems to me. And we should, um, you know, I, I'm not recommending that people give up or be depressed about it, but we should face up to this. That's that's right. Yeah. Well,
1: um, Jay, you've been uh, very, very generous uh, with, your, with your time, um, and uh, I just uh, want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your book, um, The View from Here.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. It's been fun talking to you, and I, I very much appreciate your interest. Sure. Well, take care now. Okay,
1: you too. You've been listening to my interview with Professor R.J. Wallace of the University of California at Berkeley. We were talking about his new book, The View From Here, on Affirmation, Attachment, and the Limits of Regret, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. I thank you for listening.